I'm Joshua Kagey from The Christian Citizen, and this is episode 19 of Justice, Mercy, Faith. In this episode, Claire Hine Blanton joins Christian Citizen editor Curtis Ramsey Lucas for a conversation on and around topics of her latest piece, Mandate from Heaven, a brief primer in political theology. In the piece, published last week at ChristianCitizen.us, Blanton asks, does God care about who Christians vote for, and does God endorse certain candidates? Is there a mandate from heaven directing certain individuals into certain offices? Here now is Curtis Ramsey Lucas with our guest, Claire Hine Blanton. I'm happy to welcome to Justice, Mercy, Faith, Claire Hine Blanton. Claire is a Christian citizen contributing writer and an ordained Baptist minister in Houston, Texas. She is currently a PhD student in systematic theology and ethics at the University of Aberdeen. Welcome to the podcast, Claire. It's wonderful to be here. One of your areas of focus in your doctoral program is Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the prolific writer, theologian, and martyr during the reign of the Third Reich. In your recent Christian Citizen article, Mandate from Heaven, a brief primer in political theology, you note that Bonhoeffer was a point of conversation in the 2016 presidential election. Summarize for our listeners the debate over Bonhoeffer in 2016. (laughs) The summary is a hard thing to do with that because there are two very strong factions on Bonhoeffer, um, especially as it relates to political theology and the 2016 election. On the one side, you have people who know Bonhoeffer primarily for his work as a resistor to Hitler and the powers of the National Socialist. They don't know much about what Bonhoeffer maybe wrote on ethics, but they've read his discipleship and they've read Life Together and they know that he stood up against Hitler. So they get this picture that Bonhoeffer is very pro-revolution, pro-resistance. When you actually stop and you read Bonhoeffer's works on church and state, though, and that's largely what the academy that studies Bonhoeffer does, you see that he had a very Lutheran ideal about how church and state relate to each other, that they both have different realms that they operate in. And as Christians, we're supposed to obey the state. We don't resist the state until it becomes a matter of the state telling us what we can and can't do as religious individuals. So you don't find this overwhelming sense of resistance. Um, Bonhoeffer's also pretty strongly anti-populism. So it's interesting in 2016, we had Eric Metaxas, who is a another show radio show host who wrote a book on Bonhoeffer to rescue him from this liberal elite academy that's been studying him since 1946. And he posited that Bonhoeffer would absolutely vote for Trump because Trump was the least of the two evils. He was going to protect Christianity. And those of us in the academy read that and said, well, well, let's take a step back here. Um, Bonhoeffer at his core does not like populism. He would not be supportive of a Trumpian type of election campaign. And also Bonhoeffer probably would say it doesn't matter that a particular ruler is going to support the church or state. Um, 
support the church from a state position. So that would also cause him a moment of pause because that's what you know, Hitler promised. And that's not trying to equate Hitler with any current political figure, but that's just part of what the rhetoric was that got the churches on board. Um, so this debate kind of goes back and forth. The Bonhoeffer Society, which is a consortium of Bonhoeffer scholars from across the world all came out and said, no, Bonhoeffer would not have supported this person, probably wouldn't have supported Hillary Clinton either. He he would have been like, vote for whoever you want. I'm not getting involved. That's not my job as a pastor to tell you who to vote for. Um, And out of this has kind of arisen a movement in the academy to almost rescue Bonhoeffer back from those who don't study him critically, but just know of him as this folk hero and say, let's talk about him. And we don't want, we don't want Bonhoeffer to only be someone that can be studied in the academy. But if you're going to talk about him, let's talk about him holistically and not just because of one act that may or may not have been a defining point of his life. In your, in your art, in your article, um, you argue that within political theology, there are two broad streams of thought regarding the role of government and society. Um, what are these streams of thought? How have they played out in history? And how do you see them continuing to shape modern political theology? Yeah, and that's a great question. And the one that I consider the most fundamental one for how we think about politics as humans. So on the one hand, we have a negative view of government. Not that government is bad, but that government is there to pre- prevent us from doing bad things. We we have laws in place because although I know via the Ten Commandments that killing is wrong, maybe my neighbor doesn't share that belief and doesn't know that killing is wrong. So the government steps in and says, hey, to make sure you guys aren't going around killing people, we're going to make it a law so there's civil penalties if that happens. Um, so that's the negative view. That's most closely associated with figures like Augustine. So City of God has this idea that the city of man just oversees creation and keeps us from the worst of our habits. On the other hand, you have a more Thomistic point of view that because it's called Thomistic, it's uh, associated with uh, Thomas Aquinas. And it has a more positive kind of Grecan uh, Grecan philosophy idea about government, that government does protect us from the worst of our habits and capabilities, but also promotes the general welfare, that God knew we would need some kind of organizing principle to keep us all in harmony, living together, and to help us kind of achieve this greater sense of being human so government can step in and do that. And those are really broad, sweeping generalizations about both of their theologies, but that that navigates how we understand political theology. So out of the Augustinian tradition, you have Luther, who holds the same idea of orders of creation. There's church and there's state. They don't overlap with each other. They're not necessarily against each other, but they're not subservient either. And that we have responsibilities as Christians to live both within the state's rules and to live within what the church commands us to do. On the other hand, you have someone more like Calvin, 
who says, well, yes, we have that separation of church and state, but there's no reason that the state can't also put in place programs to help us become better citizens. This grows and continues to grow, and there's probably 15 dozen different variations of it today when we talk about political theology. And we also have those who are on one far extreme that say, no, Christians can't live in the state. We have to be completely separate from ourselves, as we see in kind of the Amish communities and those on the complete other opposite that said, no, church and state really should overlap with one another with one another, like you would see in the Vatican, for example. But most Christians fall somewhere in the middle there with either church be church and state being a relationship that doesn't really work together or church really being maybe more closely aligned with the state because the state is going to be doing these programs that are good and the church might have some more influence. I'm somewhere in between those. Bonhoeffer is definitely more towards the traditional Lutheran approach, but I think in modern society, the way that our governments run now, there's almost no way to get back to that more negative viewpoint. We have so many good government programs that are part of our day-to-day lives that it's almost impossible to just have that negative view and that government is only there for civil jurisdiction. In the um, American context, of course, the institutions of church and state or religion and government are separate. Um, But that doesn't mean that faith and politics are separate or that religious institutions uh, can't be engaged in the political process. How do you think religious leaders and institutions should be involved in politics? I think that's a really excellent question and something that I've thought about very deeply as a fellow with the BJC um, and what, you know, what legal means that they have um, and still holding their 501c3 status. But I think the most important aspect of how religious institutions and faith leaders can engage is just being good citizens. Like we don't have to check our beliefs before we go vote for something. So if you are really passionate about a particular issue and you feel that that is something that aligns so totally with your religious beliefs that you can't vote for someone who disagrees with you, fine, do that. That is exercising your right and your responsibility as a faithful person to engage with the public square in a way that makes sense for you. I think we get into a lot of trouble when we have some of these loud voices that think that because this nation is still predominantly Christian per the latest Pew Research um, study on that, that that gives Christians the right to make demands on the government and the right for the government to then give certain rights back to Christians. Um, There's a lot of problems with this. One of the BJC's latest endeavors is this program and initiative to have people sign up to be Christians against Christian nationalism. And we've seen that a lot where there's this courting of the church, predominantly Protestant evangelical church, by political leaders to get votes. And they promise things like they'll return church they'll return prayer to school. Prayer is already allowed in school. That that wasn't something that, 
my son could couldn't do in a public school. Um, the problem is that we, as those success, as those promises get fulfilled, and there's more entanglement, it becomes harder to navigate. Well, what happens if we stop being a predominantly Christian country? Will will the people who are being courted now now fall out of favor and in favor of the next group? So I think we have to be very aware of what as individuals we bring to the public square and we should absolutely bring what we feel God has called us to do to that public square. But we should maybe stop at the point where we're hoping the government is somehow going to help us do that, if that makes sense. Sure. Um, 2020, we're, we're obviously in an election year. Um, and you write that the church should care about the election and be engaged with the political process, but not in the way that it currently is. So how would you recommend um, the church and other religious organizations and institutions be engaged in the electoral process? Yeah, so one of the big things that I've seen in the past four years is this idea that... Um, Christians are entitled to certain things, but they're always entitled to things that make our lives easier. Um, I think that what the church could do as it comes to political and politics in this election is go back and say, well, what does God want for our societies to look like? We read in the Old Testament so much about caring for the widow and the orphan and the alien living in our land and you know, that carries through the gospel with Jesus telling us to give to the poor and to protect those who can't protect themselves and how kind of this more equality of life among people. And I think that's where the churches should be more engaged this political season. We have new people who want to be elected. Great. I want my congressional representatives to carry out that vision of what society could look like if we would actually stop asking for legislation that benefits ourselves, but benefits others. And that's, that's more important than who gets elected is that we are vocal about these policies that help society be better and help those who are lesser in society be brought up a little bit more. And I think if the church would focus on that, as opposed to, we have to get this person elected because this person's going to do X, Y, and Z for us. We're living into God's kingdom and calling a little bit better. Sure. We hear a fair amount of um, conversation and concern regarding political polarization in America today. Um, Polarization that is surely reflected in uh, religious life. And yet, you note we are called to be so much more than our political leanings. What do you mean by that? So I teach a Sunday school series on church and state, which I love doing. And the first week we sit down and we say, okay, we know that religious beliefs are not formed in a vacuum. We know that political beliefs are not formed in a vacuum. But if we're all self-selecting into being members of this church, we probably all at least agree on a few things about Jesus and God and that, you know, Jesus and God want us to do better So let's start with that as our basis and move out. And remarkably, we have better conversations once we establish that there are some things that we hold very close to our hearts that we agree on. I think in this 
era of polarization, we forget that we share things with people who are on the other political side of the aisle from us. And then we don't talk to each other. We just yell at each other. Um, If we could remember that we all want the same things at a very deep level and we start talking to each other once again, I think we might actually get some good work done. And interestingly, I just started reading this book called From Politics to the Pews. And it's actually positing that in your 20s, the more your political views shape you, that determines whether or not you stay involved in a faith community later in life. That it's not religion that precedes political views, but it might be political views that precede your religious identity. I don't know if that's true or not. I haven't gotten through the book yet, but it's an interesting idea that regardless of you, if you agree with this author's position or the more traditional religion drives your politics, it still matters that we, we think that there's this great divide when really a lot of us agree on the same things and we should have conversations about how we can bring about those things and maybe why we disagree and what has shaped that disagreement. And as a church, if we're really one body, this is the type of conversation and work we should be doing. We shouldn't be letting our political identification divide us and stop us from being able to do good works. Given your understanding of political theology and the broad sweep of these currents or streams that you've talked about within Christian history regarding the role of government in society, are you hopeful that the church can be more uh, than its political leanings today? Ooh, that may be a hard question yeah, in an election year. <laughs> that's a hard question because I started out as a historian. And when you, when you read a lot of history, it's, it's hard to be optimistic when you read history because you just see it repeating itself. But I think that there are really good instances where the church has fallen out of political favor and done amazing work out of that. I think my hope, and this almost sounds like a bad hope, that you know the church would not have as much prestigious standing as it does today. I think we could get back to a state where we're more focused on what we're supposed to be doing for others than what we're supposed to be, than what we want to do for ourselves. Like if that rug is taken out from underneath us, we might actually start doing a lot of good things again. When you're not seeking power, then you help those who have no power. So I'm going to say that I'm optimistic, but I think it's going to be really difficult and hard for the church to get from where we are to where we need to be. So that that maybe makes it a little bit more pessimistic. Um, no one in my congregation would think that I'm an overly optimistic person. <laughs> but I think if you spend all day reading about World War II and the Holocaust, you just naturally are not going to be optimistic on a lot of things. Your your optimism is tempered by the study of history. And, it really And, and human nature. <laughs> Well, I want to thank you for joining us today on Justice, Mercy, and Faith. Thank you for having me. This was a great conversation. And for our listeners to read Claire's article, Mandate from Heaven, a brief primer in political theology and others that she has written for us, uh, visit christiancitizen.us. Thank you. Thank you. That concludes this episode of Justice, Mercy, 
faith. Thank you to this week's guest, Claire Hein Blanton. Our theme music is Believable 2 by Peter Sandberg. The Christian Citizen is edited by Curtis Ramsey Lucas and is a publication of the American Baptist Home Mission Societies. The show, website, and newsletter are produced by myself, Joshua Kagi. Stories are copy edited by Hannah Estefanos. Our art director is Danny Ellison. The Christian Citizen editorial board is Dr. Jeffrey Hagray, Laura Alden, Susan Gottschall, Dr. Jeffrey Johnson, the Reverend Sarah Strosel Kagi, the Reverend Salvador Oriana, the Reverend Dr. Marilyn Turner Triplett, and the Reverend Cassandra Karkoff Williams. And our advisors are Sherilyn Crow, the Reverend Kimberly Payton Jones, the Reverend Stephen D. Martin, the Reverend Marvin A. McMickle, and the Reverend Harold Dean. To learn more about The Christian Citizen, visit our website, christiancitizen.us. That concludes this episode of Justice, Mercy, Faith. We'll be back with a new episode next week. Thanks for listening.